This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, today we are in, in a sermon series we're calling The Five T's of Transformation. Today we're talking about trust and we're really going to go to a place where we think about the trust that develops out of a friendship. And, and the significant amount of trust that comes to us when we have good and healthy and holy friendships and how God uses those things to do what, you know, that first song talked about. God knows what we need and to meet us at the place where, where we can grow into the people that God wants us to be. Uh, a few months ago, I was at a seminar and listening to Bill Hybels talk. And Bill Hybels is a pastor in, in Illinois, up near the Chicagoland area. You can... We have, there's a picture of Bill. And he was talking about <clears throat> learning leadership early in his life. His dad owned a, a fruit company in, in Michigan. And Bill said, I watched my dad run his business. And in watching his dad run his business, he picked up leadership principles to which Bill then began to employ in his own life. But Bill said, there was this unique challenge in watching my dad with his leadership and how he lived out his life. He said, my dad was the kind of person who was soft-spoken, who, who didn't say a lot of words, but he would he'd just kind of go about the business. But then when something broke or maybe something egregious happened in the company, he would call an employee into what they called the banana room because that's where they stored bananas. And he said, in the banana room is a place you never wanted to go because in that banana room, uh, his dad would speak like he never spoke before. And there, were, there would be two people that would go into the banana room, an employee and Bill's dad. And there would be one person that would come out of the banana room. Bill said, we never saw the other person, you know, after that. It was like they were vaporized or something. Like, I just, I had Star Trek in mind when, when he was talking about it. Like, poof, there they go. They would never be seen again. And so, Bill said, when I started planning a church and working on a church, he said, if if I wanted to keep people in line, the banana room was great for doing that. But it was horrible for leading a place where you want to have things like grace and mercy and truth and love, where you want to have people explore things and try new things and experience failure because the banana room is one way of functioning. And so Bill talked about how he had to learn to grow into a different kind of leader than using that way of, of just blowing up or, or going over the top, going to a boiling point of some kind. Henry Cloud, Bill's uh, friend and mentor, came along uh, a little while later and talked about how the banana room is one way in which people live out their life. Uh, many of us, and sometimes, um, sometimes you're there, you, you think about how do you live out your life? There are points in my life early on, I, I did that kind of experience explosive kind of thing too. Hopefully I'm trying to get away from it. But Henry said that there's about three or four different places you can actually go to live your sense of life and to live in relationship to other people and to live out um, your sense of, of leadership. And so Henry drew a box and in the box he, he uh, put four words. The banana room. That's one place where you can go. You can kind of melt down, express yourself in that way. And then down in the, in the right-hand corner, he put the word addictions. Um, sometimes the way we function through life is through uh, an, an addiction. Sometimes it's secret. 
Sometimes it's open. Some, maybe many people know about it. But when life is tough, when we face hard challenges, instead of facing those things head on, we may go to the addiction over here. The other item that he drew was the word isolation. Um, and that's just like where you withdraw. When you face a tough situation, you face a big question, a big challenge, you don't really know what to do. And you're not going to explode because you're not that kind of personality. And you're not going to go to addictions, but you will go to a place of aloneness and you'll isolate yourself. And then down below in the left, bottom left, you see the word connected. And what Henry talked about that was the fact that people who are connected have this built-in capacity for resiliency. They have a capacity to, to face what life brings them. And it's not necessarily because they're connected to people who are right around them right at that moment. But they've got a base of people that they can go to. They, they talk through life with. They, um, they have this reserve reservoir where they have a sense of confidence and a non-anxious presence. And they can move through whatever life brings to them or whatever they're trying to get done in life. And it could be business, but it could be parenting. It could be uh, a relationship. It could be uh, dealing with your adult parents or dealing with your own children. But if you've got a group of people around you, if you're connected to others, there's a balance uh, that comes along in your life. There was an English um, monk and writer who I think we've got, his name, I've got to see his name up here. It's Allard of Revolu. I actually don't know how to pronounce that, but if you just say it with confidence, you know, you can say anything you don't know with confidence, and it's good. Whenever you're reading, you know, somebody asks you to read scripture out loud, that's what I just say. Just say it like you know it, and it's, it'll pass. But Allard of, of Revolu, he was an uh, English monk and, and writer. He said this, friendship, really being connected, is like a step to raise us to the love and knowledge of God. What happiness, what security, what joy to have someone to whom you dare to speak on terms of equality. One to whom you need have no fear to confess your failings. One to whom you can unblushingly make known what progress you have made in the spiritual life. The scriptures paint for us vivid pictures of people who are disconnected. And how in their disconnectedness, there's all kinds of struggle and turmoil. And then they paint for us pictures of people who are connected, who, who take friendship up like it's the gift that God has intended for us. And who have friends, and they develop these deep um, journeys. And God works in their life for great transformation. And for God's, God's blessing upon them, but God's goodness in the world. Today we're going to take a look at the friendship between David and, and Saint, uh, Jonathan, the son of King Saul. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to jump from, really going to cover a big swath of Scripture from 1 Samuel 18 to 1 Samuel 20. So there's about three chapters in there. We're going to pick out some different texts along the way, okay? 1 Samuel 18 to 1 uh, Samuel 20. We start in 18, 1 to 4. After David had finished talking with Saul. It's actually, we pick up right at the moment after David has um, killed Goliath, the Philistine. And then the army went on a rampage. And after they went on the rampage, the Israelite army, they gathered back around the tent of Saul. And they had a, a meeting of the minds. 
And so this is where the conversation takes place in that tent with a great big victory being just won. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a, a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan selected or sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Um, it's amazing what the writer tells us about what's happening in that place. That David and Jonathan, we don't know that they've ever met. We do know that David previously has had some time to spend in, in Saul's house where he's played his harp, but we don't know that they've ever met before. But what we see happening here is like sort of an instantaneous bonding. There's something that happened on the battlefield and then that happened in that moment where David and Jonathan, these two guys, had great love for one another. They, they embraced one another. Something was instantaneous. I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where there was like an instant friendship. You, you encountered somebody that you knew something was different about this, but their heart, their heart beat as your heart. David and Jonathan have that kind of experience in that moment. There's something about this guy that I really love and I know he loves me. A few years ago, several years ago now, our son, Moses, he was one, Anna and I and Moses, we moved to a new, new town, a new pastorate, and one evening our neighbor came over or actually the the night we got there neighbors and a number of other people came over and they helped move all kinds of boxes and everything into the house that we were going to live in the next morning at nine o'clock our neighbor her, her name was Rachel she showed up at our door Anna and I had just barely woken up we were still wearing our pajamas and Rachel was at our door I think we've got a picture of Dan and Rachel right Rachel was at our door and she came in and she stayed till 10, 11, and then noon. And finally at noon, she's like, oh, maybe I ought to go home and do something. And we're like, this is going to be an interesting relationship. Um, we didn't even get a chance to get out of our pajamas. We just sat in the living room, boxes all around, a piano over there, talking to Rachel. And her husband, Dan, he was at work that day, but then our... Uh, our houses were right across the street from one another. And it was like our kids and, and uh, Rachel and Anna, they like wore a path back and forth between the two houses, talking and connecting. Um, we would be blessed to, um, to watch Dan and Rachel make some great strides early in their faith. And, they, and then we would be blessed also to be recipients of their encouragement when we went through some hard times. And still to this day, we are friends with Dan and Rachel. When we, when we make a journey back into Michigan, we often we connect with them and we see how life is going for them. They're deep friends, friends where we've bonded in an instant. Now, friendship doesn't always bond in an instant, right? Sometimes friendship takes time. It takes getting to know somebody. And that's, that's the real critical uh, point about friendship a good friendship it takes time it takes being in one another's presence and there's something else that 
Jonathan does interesting at the end of that text. The writer says he takes off his, takes off his cloak and he takes off his bow and he takes all of his instruments. He says, David, there's something between us that I, I just want to let you know we're equals here. This isn't, um, I'm not the king's son and, and you're just a soldier, but we're equals along the way. And as our hearts beat in, in like fashion, we can talk about anything. And it was a critical turning point. So <clears throat> King Saul, he saw this friendship taking place, this friendship transpiring. And he knew that David was highly regarded among the people. And so in Saul's own his own heart, his own spirit, he began to have an enormous amount of jealousy creep up. And so if we turn over to chapter 19, we find these words, the writer tells us. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him his father, told David what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll ask my father to go with you there. Uh, go there with me and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you, helped you in any way that he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all, all of Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. Afterward, Jonathan called David and he told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul and David served in the court as before. Jonathan finds himself in this fascinating place this in-between place between having this friendship with David and having his father, whose heart has gone mad. It's gone mad at everybody. And at, the, at this moment in time, Saul is mad and, and consumed with jealousy towards David. The only thing he can think about is doing harm to David. And he, he does it because in some ways he knows that, you know, at the surface, David is a threat to Jonathan. But even more so than that, David is a threat to Saul himself. And Jonathan, though he doesn't know all of the ruminations of his father's heart, he knows because when he's brought David's name up, his dad has started to fling, uh, fling arrows and, and, and fling spears. He knows that David's in trouble. Jonathan plays the part of a faithful friend, a truly faithful friend who, who will go to bat for his friend, even to his father who will stand up and say uh, to his friend, you're in danger. And he'll go to his father and he will plead the case. All of us need somebody in our life, don't we? Who will be a faithful friend, true and true, all the, all the time. Who will encourage us, who will stand with us. Who will, in fact, stand in places and speak truth. Whether it's truth to somebody else or truth to ourselves. One of the... Um, people I deeply admire in their faith and in their witness is a person by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was talking to somebody this last week, a millennial, and I, and I wondered if 
they had heard of Bonhoeffer and, and they hadn't. So I thought, okay, well, it's, it means that Bonhoeffer's story is still a lot of people need to hear this. Some of you may know about Bonhoeffer. He, he died at the end of World War II. He was a German um, Lutheran pastor who, who um, spent some time here in the United States, spent some time in England, but really was devoted, was devoted to serving the church in Germany in a very difficult time. And he said something like this. There's a number of Bonhoeffer quotes. And so if you pull up a Bonhoeffer quote on Google, you're going to find that Bonhoeffer said some things that were tough, that showed a sense of resilience, a sense of toughness, a sense of resolve about what the church ought to be like and about what followers of Jesus ought to be like. And so Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is, is, of evil is itself evil. And God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Bonhoeffer said some tough things, some things that showed he, he was resolved in, well, he was resolved in this fact, in serving Christ above serving any country. He was, reserved, he was resolved in the fact that the church needed to be a voice and a voice for the voiceless. And he saw a lot of people who had no voice. But if you read it, one of the last books published in Bonhoeffer's name is Letters and Papers from Prison. As you, as you read those letters, you'll find that the Bonhoeffer that spoke those words had great questions that affected his soul. He wondered if he had spoken too quickly. He wondered if he had done enough. In fact, if you've ever seen the film Valkyrie, which is about an assassination on Hitler's life, um, you may not know that Bonhoeffer was involved in that. But Bonhoeffer struggled with everything that he was doing near the end of his life. So he writes these letters, and they're taken out, and they're shared with friends. Bonhoeffer's got a faithful friend on the outside by the name of Eberhard Bethke. And Bethke writes letters back to Bonhoeffer. He encourages him. Through all that he goes through in the midst of, that, of, a, of a prison cell in Berlin and then in a prison camp, Bethke encourages Bonhoeffer so that when Bonhoeffer comes to the end of his life, he looks at a fellow prisoner and he says, for me, this is the end, but it's only the beginning. He continues to walk, encouraged along by a faithful friend. Jonathan was a gift to David in that he was faithful. So, <clears throat> Jonathan thinks the breach has been repaired with his dad, that David's been welcomed back to the table. But David has been on the receiving end of, of arrows from Saul again. And so in chapter 20, David comes back to Jonathan and he says these words. David now fled from Naoth in Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done, he exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? Jonathan says, that's not true. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Then David took an oath before Jonathan and said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan, why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. What happens then after that verse, 
um, is that David and Jonathan talk about the reality that they're at a crossroads. The data that's coming into both of their worlds and the aspirations that they have are giving them mixed signals. David knows that Saul is not happy with him, that Saul intends to do him harm. Jonathan is still working in this other reality where he, he hopes for the best for David and his dad. And he thought that they had repaired the breach. And so they're at this crossroads. And they develop a plan to figure out what are Saul's intentions. Crossroads can be interesting places for friendship and for companionship and for developing trust. Uh, friendships almost always come to a crossroads where data is different. The data that, that's coming in and a person's intentions, your intentions, may be mixed. Crossroads are critical places where you can either decide to go together or you can, you can take different tracks. John Wesley in the 1700s saw a lot of people in their own walk with Christ come to some unique crossroads. Some places where they, they needed a, a plan to figure some things out. They needed a group of folks to come around them. Wesley developed a couple of different kinds of groups. And one of the groups that he developed was called a band. Now, uh, when we talk about a band, we don't mean a band like um, a musical band. And I have a picture of one of my favorite musical bands from the 1980s. Anybody know that band name? Striper? Anybody go to one, any of their concerts? Yeah, there, there you go. Uh, Wesley's, I did, I did. Um, interesting band. No, Wesley had in mind a band more like the next picture, like a band of brothers. If you've seen the HBO miniseries, a band of brothers. People that you can go with through, through critical times, places that are real crossroads in life. Uh, recently, we've been encouraged as a staff to, to develop a band, to talk with three or four or five people and bring them into close relationship with, with us. Not that as a staff person we're to be the leader, but no, we want to enter into a place, enter into a journey where we say all of us around this table or this uh, sitting in these couches, we, we recognize that there are crossroads that all of us come to along the way in life. And we want to develop a group of folks who can journey and journey deeply. And we can encourage one another. In fact, we can listen to the Lord uh, with one another. We can find out what the Lord is saying to us. Now, I, uh, I initiated this process, and as the, the group I've been a part of has gotten together, everybody around our table has said, you know, this is something unique, something on the one hand we need, but something that we're very timid about. Because we've never been called to a place where we say we don't really know what's out in front of us. But we know deep down that there may be something that God wants to do in our life and he wants to do it through the gift of three or four brothers for myself. And if you're a woman, maybe three or four sisters. Where God wants to take you and lead you. And the events of life will be such that you'll need a band of brothers or a band of sisters to come around you and bless you 
and share deeply the gift of faithfulness, the gift of prayer, the gift of challenge, the gift of pressing you on into the fullness of what God has for you. Jake Hotchkiss has been tasked with, with connecting people who are interested in bands and talking with bands around here. So if, if you're interested in, in more information about a band, I'm going to uh, encourage you to get in touch with Jake. So Jonathan and David, they find out Saul's intentions. They know that he doesn't have things uh, in mind for David that are, are life-giving. And so at the end of chapter 20, we hear these words. As soon as the boy was gone, they had set in motion to play. David came out of hiding near the end of a stone pile. And David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. And at last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. They realize at the end of this, of this chapter that they are going to have to separate and part for both of their sakes. But they make a covenant with one another. And the covenant is this, the Lord is between us. And any time we have a capacity to be drawn together, it's the Lord that's going to be between us. And he's going to overwatch our house. He's going to overwatch our lives. And we will covenant no matter what happens, that we will seek the best for our, our brother. Later on in the story of David, he will bless Jonathan's family in a very unique and robust way. Um, we started off with a picture of the box. Can we go back to that picture of the box? As you look at this box, the X stands for you, for me, for us. There's a place there, a word probably, as you look at it, that may be a little bit more defining about where you're at, where I'm at. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Which corner do you find yourself in right now? Where do you want to be? What are you going to do about it? Jonathan and David, they found one another, they sought one another out, but they entered into a friendship. It was really a gift from God. And they walked in that friendship, transformed their life. The Lord has gifts that he wants to give to us. If the Lord is calling you to a place where you seek out a deep friendship, a connected place, enter into it, seek it, long for it. Let's pray. Kind Father, you are good and you know what we need. You watch over us, you care for us. 
you know that some of us in this place are isolated. Some of us have found ourselves in places of addiction. Some of us are quiet until all goes ballistic. For in any of those places, you know that what we need is we need people who come to us, speak truth in the midst of our life, who encourage us, who show us you. So call us, kind Father, into the connected place. Lead us there. And if we're there, we give glory and thanks for the people you've brought around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.